Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 5, where we are discussing all things coaching. My guests are going to present their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. Two excellent guests join me this week, so I'll hand over to them to introduce themselves. Hey, uh, so I'm Cal Jones. I'm a judo coach based in North Wales. Uh, I've just finished my master's degree in advanced coaching practice, I think it was called. Um, but I'm a bit of a skill acquisition nerd, I suppose. So that's that's the area I, I find most interesting. Uh, so I'm I'm here to bore you all today with uh, representative learning design. There's a brilliant paper by uh, Ross Pinder and a few others. Keith obviously is in there. Uh, it's talking about the concept of representative learning design and how it uh, applies in our practice task design for coaching. Hi guys, uh, I'm Tony Hill. Uh, I'm a rugby coach uh, at Nelsey and Blackwell, which is near Bristol. Uh, I also work for the Bristol Bears Academy. Um, currently doing my uh, what in old money level three, my England Rugby Advanced Coaching Award. I think it's, it's rebranded now. Uh, really happy to be here, and I'm going to be uh, talking around uh, one of the Magic Academy podcasts from the week. Jens, absolute pleasure to have you both on. Thank you very much. Uh, looking forward to this. So uh, just before we get straight into things, a uh, reminder for anyone listening to check out the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly for links to all today's content and other resources. So Cal, coming over to you first, uh, far away. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, so the paper itself is talking about uh, the concept of representative learning design. So essentially what the uh, authors postulate is that our practice tasks should quite closely resemble what occurs in the environment itself. So it's often misconstrued as the game teaches itself, which is definitely not what the suggestion is. It's that there's something that we call specified information that needs to be present in the practice task itself. So the classic example that's used is the bowling machine in cricket. Was it, was it called Merlin? I think it was called Merlin. Um, they introduced this to show spin bowlers, spin bowling deliveries to the England cricket team. And they found that they couldn't really adjust to the spin anywhere near as effectively as when they had an actual bowler bowling at them. And uh, they think it's because there's no specifying information. The batsman doesn't have the information of how the bowler's hand is positioned, how the ball's released, the release point, uh, if it's coming out of the front of the hand, the back of the hand. All they have is a ball spinning at them and then they have to try and hit it. So there's two key concepts that are introduced in it. There's functionality and action fidelity. Uh, functionality is how much the practice task information is transferable to the contest environment. So if we're trying to do rugby tackling, for example, and we're practicing on a man holding a shield, the information itself is completely different to when somebody runs at me with a rugby ball and they try and step me. So if that functional information is missing, the motor solution I come up with, the, the skill that I perform might not transfer. It might be the case that I become incredibly good at tackling a bag, but I can't tackle a man when he tries to step me and he's got footwork and I've not, I'm not able to pick up on that information and couple my action with the information that I can perceive. 
Uh, and then we have a concept called action fidelity. So action fidelity is how much the skill that we use can actually transfer into the performance environment itself. So I like to think of um, basketball. I used to have a basketball hoop in my garden on the garage and practiced a bunch because I was a kid, it was fun and was really good at putting the ball in the hoop. And then I started playing against people and I discovered that they just put their hand up in front of me and could block every time I shoot. My trajectory was too low. I'd learned to shoot a basketball, but I had no action fidelity. It didn't work in reality because I'd never practiced with a defender. My, uh, my brother was six years older, so <laughs> if I played with him, I wouldn't win anyway. So there was a lot of me out of the back on my own throwing a ball in a net. Uh, yeah, when I played in college, I found every time I released the ball, it was way too shallow of a trajectory, and it was really easy for them to defend. So what we want is for our practice tasks to have functionality, so the information that we're learning to attune to, to couple our actions to, has to be relevant and has to be similar to what happens in the contest environment. And the action we use has to be transferable. If it only works in training, then it's a, a bit of a useless skill, really. Yeah, and the paper goes into it in great detail. If you put it on your uh, uh, the notes that go with the show, if people are of, of a mind, is a really good read. It's one of my favourite papers. Right, fantastic. The, the, there's some big long words in there, so I, yeah, yeah, definitely worth unpicking some of those um, to start with. So I guess just just take a step back from uh, the skill act piece. Like, do you want to just frame this a little bit in in kind of how it sits within ecological dynamics and what what that kind of I guess view of the world entails like why why is that different to the other people that sit on the other side of this debate <laughs> yeah thanks for throwing me in that minefield <laughs> um, yeah so essentially in the from an ecological ecological dynamics perspective we don't learn skill in isolation so a skill is a product of the environment that it's situated within and how we can attune to the information that is present so if I just drill a tackle on a tackle bag and I have some key kinematic points that I try and put across, that doesn't necessarily mean that I can actually tackle in reality when there's players running at me. So the ecological approach would have a bunch of games that become more and more representative and you move up the scale from we're having a player run at us and we have to just pick them up. As they run at you, you have to lift them off their feet. Then we have, you just have to make contact with the correct shoulder and wrap the legs. Then we just keep adding and adding a little bit more uh, validity. So it becomes more close, more congruent to what actually happens in, uh, in the performance environment itself. Uh, whereas the other side of the coin kind of treats our brains as a computer. We memorize sport, you memorize some techniques and then you learn how you can select a technique and deploy it based on what you see in game. So developing a tackle, a, a skill or a technique of a tackle is its own thing. It sits in your brain as something you've memorized. And when the time comes, you just pull it out and throw it and go, oh, there's my tackle movement. And you can do it in the game. I don't think that's what happens. I think that the, the overwhelming body of research is kind of suggesting that's not what happens. I think there's people that, subscribe to the information, the, the brain is computer side of things that still prioritize having uh, ecologically valid practice tasks. Um, yeah, so they would call it planning and reviewing and um, 
executing, I suppose. So, or reading, uh, a reading skill. So I might know what the tackle skill is, but if I only practice and drill tackles, I don't have any of that um, recognition. I can't spot the situations where it's best for me to deploy these skills. So I think in practice, 95% of the practice tasks that we do will look very similar between both sides of the coin. It's just that that extra 5% where there's a coach telling them, this is what the move looks like. Go and do it 50 times with your partner while they walk at you slowly. I think that's dead time. I think we could use that more efficiently. Uh, and I think they'd say the opposite. I'd say that it's absolutely crucial that they develop these schemas, these pictures in their head that they can deploy. Uh, yeah, which is where Twitter gets exciting. <laughs> I think you framed that really nicely. And <clears throat> I guess, yeah, I think the good thing about this is, is probably like keeping the debate on the grass. So actually what what's the practical implication for coaches like i think that's ultimately like that's the bit that anyone actually goes on twitter to kind of find out isn't it like the theory is great but really what does it mean for me on the grass so in that sense we've got return to um yeah kind of pre-season camp back in uh on friday if i'm and and we're talking about chatting a lot because because tony's going to touch on it in uh, in his part so it tees it up quite nicely but actually it's it's probably where lots of people are at with rugby and return to contact um so i just think it's it's a it's a really good kind of discussion because everyone's discovering this having had 18 months of really no contact so if i'm introducing tackle for the first time what's the danger of number one in terms of i guess confidence and secondly, in terms of overloading the specifying information, if we just go into a game, even if it's like walking, jogging, is there potentially way too much information for these players to then be comfortable in? Actually, like, I don't really know what a tackle looks like. don't really know what I'm meant to do. How, how do I overcome that using this approach on the grass? Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's a really great question. Uh, so you can be completely overloaded. So you are looking at something that has so much information that is specifying, it becomes chaotic. It's really difficult to pick up on the, uh, the key piece of information that you need to be able to coordinate your action with. So yeah, it's a really, really, really pertinent question. Uh, I actually was lucky enough to go along to one of the local schools to do a return to contact thing with them in a sort of unofficial capacity as a, as a judo coach doing some contact stuff for them. Um, and I, I did this really. So I started off just playing a game of um, bulldogs. So they'd run across and you just have to tip them. Then I added it so that from it being a tip, you had to pick your partner up. So I didn't explain any of the kinematics of how we have the band of steel, the aligned spinal posture. I didn't have driving, any of that. To pick somebody up, you kind of have to have your back in the right position to make a tackle. You have to have your arms around them in a way that you'd be able to control them in a tackle. Otherwise, you can't pick them up. So the task itself started uh, allowing them to coordinate a solution. Um, then after we had the pickup version, it was just get them on the floor any way you can. I don't care how you do it. If you pick them up and suplex them like you're in the WWE, that, that would be fine. Uh, well, if it was if it was safe. <laughs> Not condoning that, by the way. No, no, no. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I gave I gave no uh, no rules in high tackles are forbidden. Um, they were just building up to a point that they were able to grab the person, not worry about any kind of technique, 
and just get them on the floor any way they could. Uh, and we ended up in a position that the smaller people were kind of dodging the bigger people. So at that point, I just played with the rules a bit and said, if you bring down the big guys, you steal them, they become catches with you, or you get double points for them, or you just play with the rule a little bit. So you ended up with a bunch of uh, gang tackles. People were finding out how to do um, hold up tackles, keep somebody in position. And between all of them, they just dragged them down. Um, and, you know, backs, the, the players that have haircuts in rugby kind of have to rely on that, don't they? They've not not got the uh, not got the real rugby skills of tackling. Uh, <laughs> shots fired. We have to have something, Cal. We have to have something. <laughs> yeah, you get haircuts and girlfriends. What do we get? <laughs> uh, yeah, so after that, it started introducing a basic kinematic structure to it. So after they were bringing people down, you were talking about the contact point. So is it easier to bring them down if you're cuddling them at chest height or if you've wrapped their legs up? Uh, are you driving them backwards? Are you trying to stop them coming forward? How are you trying to execute these things? And at that point, we had a couple of people that were still struggling with a, with a motor solution. So you just introduce a basic um, highlights, sort of key points that you want to hit. So you say you know, the classic, the ring of steel, you want your arms to be around their legs. You need to be having your spine in the right position. So the coaching points came after the game. So we introduced it. So they were learning how to pick up on as people were running and trying to put footwork patterns in, they were trying to actually get past them. You were learning how you could get into a position to get contact on them first. Then you're learning how you could get into a position that you could lift them. Then you were getting into a position that you're getting your head on the right side. You had to hit the shoulder on the side that they were going. Uh, and then it was just tackling. And by the end, they were, they were just crushing people. It was phenomenal, you know, from a single class. I mean, I've, I don't teach a lot of rugby. I'm, I'm a judo coach, uh, but I've taught a few rugby classes uh, locally and the speed at which they picked it up. It's um, either the, the method works or, you know, tackling is really easy. One or the other. <laughs> I love it. And again, I just think you've explained that really nicely. So I, I'm keen to bring Tony in because Tony, I know obviously you do kind of senior adults and but also you know the the mighty uh, nails in Backwell under ten. So I just just really interested in in what your Sunday mornings would look like with the rest of the the kind of community club. Like, what would you just see a lot of gameplay? Um, would you see a lot of drills? Like, what's what's your kind of perspective of where where this stuff sits within you know within the kind of the reality of a a Sunday morning rugby club? Well, first of all, Phil, thanks for um, uh, sort of bringing it to to me to talk about under tens because after that theory, my brain is just frying a little bit. It's just coming back to normal, so. It's nice to talk about the, sim uh, the simple stuff. Um, yeah, look, I, I think, yeah, fr from my perspective and the environment that I work in, we do like to keep a lot of games uh, and try to keep um, it looking like uh, the practice that you're gonna do on, on the weekend as much as, uh, or the gameplay as much as possible. Um, so yeah, from our perspective, but, um, and I'm probably gonna talk about it a little bit in, in, in a minute, but uh, one of the things we do or we have introduced is, uh, is this is this world rugby uh, tackle ready uh, some of the bits and pieces and and obviously language really it, it's it's it differs from wherever you go around the different aspects of uh, uh, of parts of the tackle as, as Cal's just said a second ago but um we've started to introduce some of those concepts and I think um yeah it's been a really important part of what we're trying to do 
uh, trying to get the guys uh, as you know as early as possible get used to and conditioned and uh, technically ready for what is a, a you know a, a collision based game so from both your perspectives do you, do you think the messaging maybe gets lost and social media is really bad for this because it's I don't know if people, I don't think they're trying to actually sell stuff, but, but just, you know, the, as you said earlier, Cal, like the game is the teacher. It, it's just a quip, like just, it just gets thrown out there. No one actually and really kind of takes the time to understand the nuance or the context. It's, it's just this kind of like soundbite coaching almost that, that happens now. So do we think there is like, what's the reality behind that for you guys in your sports? Are, are people in a position where, they really understand the layered nature of if you're going to coach through games and you know kind of in an ecological or through a kind of ecological lens you need to have lots of progressions and you need to be able to dial up and dial down the complexity that is or are people maybe really struggling with that and they just hear this it's all about games but they've actually got no it's a huge generalization no real understanding of how do you make it a technically focused game or a tactically focused game how do you go through i guess the progressions do you know what i mean is that where actually maybe they're not being supported in understanding almost the pedagogy of delivery rather than just hearing this well like game games coaching is the thing that i'll just follow the trend that's what i need to do Pointed at me, Cal. You? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I think that's um, it's a really interesting and a very very complex question, Phil. To be honest, so uh, I think it absolutely happens, and I think it's it's very dependent on where the coach is in their in their journey and where they are in terms of their understanding of uh, of, of the coaching process. Um, but I think you know absolutely. I think that's that's probably going to be happening at most clubs on most community rugby clubs on a Sunday morning where. As you rightly say, we've moved away from drills and uh, or, um, and and we've moved towards gameplay. But but what about the gameplay? Are we are we understanding the whether or not we're exaggerating a problem? Are we using pause rewinds? Are we setting up particular scenarios so that we can really uh, help the players understand tactically what they're doing um, and building through? I I don't know, but but I I would say that um, you know it's it's it's. It's, it's definitely swayed very much towards gameplay, but I think the next step and the next level for a lot of coaches will be that understanding of the nuances within that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so in judo, we're essentially predominantly coaching the same way that we were coaching in 1880. Um, there's an awful lot of uh, just drills. It's repetition without any variability at all. So we have a thing called Uchikomi, where you turn halfway in for a throw, you turn back out, you turn halfway in for a throw, you turn back out, and you do that 50 times, and then you finish with a throw. Uh, and we're told that this develops skill, that it makes you good at judo, that it will transfer and get you really effective at throwing people. And it, it doesn't. Like there's the, the research seems to really conclusively show that it's it's really poor. Uh, the same thing, we have a thing called Nagakomi, we have Kata, which is just you repeatedly throw your partner and they don't resist. Uh, they either stood passively accepting a throw or they're moving within a sort of a little dance routine. If any judo people listen, they might crucify me for calling kata a dance, but, but it is, get over it. Um, so 
that's one of the main reasons that I'm so against drills. It's what happens as the, what is seen as gold standard in my sports still. I had a gentleman the other day who was saying that the Japanese team who just cleared up at the Olympics do loads of uchikomi, that they do kata, that they do a bunch of just drilling throws over and over and over again. And I, I happened to mention to him that they also have like 20 hours of just randori, of just sparring with each other, with the best players in the world. So it doesn't matter that half of their time is spent doing something that might not be as efficient as it could be, because the rest of the time is spent doing something that is really efficient. If I spent half of my time combing my hair and half of my time practicing and I got really, really good, it would be a fallacy for me to say, well, I spent half of my time combing my hair. So combing my hair got me really good at judo. Um, but this, this sort of trap that people fall in is somebody is good. The training that they have done must have been good for them to become good. And some of it will be, I'm sure, but it doesn't mean everything they do is gold dust and should just be picked up and transferred and copied. Um, yeah, so for me, for my sport, we're gradually moving. I'm trying my best to make some headway into it towards a more games-based approach. Uh, but the games that people tend to use tend to lack specified information. It's more of a doing a game because the kids find games fun and just turning in for a throw 50 times is really tedious. And your, um, your attrition rate with five-year-olds would be absolutely through the sky if that's all you do with them. So you get coaches having them just run around playing games. Um, so I think the next big step for the development of using a more game-centric approach is for people to understand the necessity to include information that people can attune to. So the things that you see in the game have to be things that actually happen in reality. You know, so for judo, uh, pulling or pushing game where your partner is constantly compromising their center of mass. They're either falling backwards or falling forwards. That teaches me how I can attune to that. I can learn when my partner's weight comes forward, I can do these skills. When their weight goes backward, this is how I can move to take advantage of it. If my partner just stands there like a zombie and I turn in and do a move, I don't get any of that feedback. I'm not learning how I can uh, coordinate my movement patterns with the information I'm picking up. Um, yeah, so I think there's definitely an over-reliance on drills in my sport. And I think that there's uh, the move towards a games-based approach that's happened in general. The next jump I'm hoping will be for people to recognize that the information that's present within the games they play needs to be a slice of the performance environment itself. You know, it's not enough just to have a game that is a bunch of fun. Well, obviously there's times for it. I mean, for skill development, um, you need actually to have something that the athletes are learning how they can perform a skill based on what they're picking up. Yeah. Off the back of that, what, what would be your kind of top tips? Because I'm just thinking in a, in a team sport, actually, if it's just me and a ball and some stuff, like that becomes really difficult. And, and lots of players will have grown up, I guess, understanding like the extras type things. You go and practice by yourself and, and you know, close skills, kicking at goal or whatever, that, that's going to be pretty simple. But I'd probably see a lot of people do lots of repetitive box kicks or passing at the post or something like that. So from your perspective, like top tips of how, how would you manipulate that training and actually say, okay, how do we make that more effective and add more specifying information when the reality is we haven't got five or 10 or even 29 other people to, to make this look like the game looks on a, on a Sunday or a Saturday or whenever. Yeah. Um, 
it, it becomes really difficult when you're when you're alone because the information that you can attune to just just isn't there. So something as simple as throwing a ball at a post, you're not actually learning how to time that pass based on somebody's run. You're not learning what type of pass you should be executing based on what the defense is showing. And the way that you perform the skill is completely dependent on, on that information. You know, if I just went onto a rugby pitch and pinged the ball, if there was somebody that came along and looked at my technique, they could say, that's a good pass or that's not a good pass. But they have no idea. You know, you might see people that have got this high elbow, that they've got great hip rotation. Yeah, that, that's wonderful. Like, it's a really efficient kinematic structure. But that pass might have missed everybody. Like, there's people that have got phenomenally good kinematics that are appalling at sport. There's people that look like they're shoveling a bag of coal and just flip it out, but they can attune really efficiently to what's happening around them. And they can find the right person at the right time, making the right run, hitting the right space. Um, so developing that skill, skill itself, is really difficult without specifying information, I think. Um, the advantage you have, I guess, would be you could practice a kinematic. Uh, you could just sort of concentrate on how your elbow's positioned and that kind of thing. As I say, the issue then is that it might just lack functionality and it might lack action fidelity. The way that I'm releasing that ball at the pad on a post might actually, in reality, be too slow. It might give the defenders the opportunity to close me down. They might be getting their hands in. Uh, I might be throwing it too high, too low. My, you know, There's a bunch of variables that make it very difficult for me to know whether it's efficient or not. Uh, yeah, so in short, I don't know. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to offer any any constructive advice on that on your own. I guess you'd probably be looking at doing skills that are closed. So something like kicking for the posts, you could practice that, I, I imagine. Uh, box kicking would probably be quite difficult. You don't know whether you're being charged down or if your launch angle is accurate or not. Uh, yeah, no, I, I can't help you, I'm afraid. No, 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 mate. That's great. And I think, I, I, it's just, as I say, it's one of those things I just think lots of people would always, coaches would always probably be pushing people to do this extra type of training. And actually, uh, yeah, it just comes back to that kind of how, how purposeful is it? Are you out there maybe just creating a load of bad habits that aren't, aren't necessarily going to help you? And are, are there better ways to do that? And even in my head, I'm just thinking now, can you have, you know, three or four practices as players are turning up early, okay, great. Like this is our first little game, or this is this is our practice station for this. This is our practice station for this. You know, they have then a very good picture of the purpose of that practice. But you might need three or four other people before you can actually start. Even one other person, I guess, as you said, like a one v one can still be a game. It can still provide specifying information, and you can develop something from that. Yeah, for sure. So we can go up and down. It's kind of a sliding scale of how representative it is which is why I think the, the misnomer of the game teaches itself comes about. Obviously, a one-to-one -one representation of a game would just be a game. But what we do is, or what, what the approach is, is taking a slice of the game. So let's say um, delivering the ball as a nine from a breakdown. Uh, I'm going to show how poor my rugby knowledge is, but I, I'll, I'll apologise for that. Uh, so let's say I've got that ball and I'm trying to release it to a player. I'd need a person that I'm trying to hit that's making a run so I can time it based on their run. If they're just stood still, I'm not learning how I can actually deliver it into a position so that they can receive in full strides, so that they can uh, have the time to read what's going on so they're not being closed down. 
Uh, and I probably need to defend it. I'd need somebody there that can try and stifle it. Otherwise, I mean, I've, I've never even thought about playing nine in my life, but I'd imagine that the nine has the pressure of a defender consistently. If they're not having that pressure, they're not learning how their release is affected by that pressure. Um, yeah, so I'd suggest if you have afters, if you go and practice alone and do your own thing, just bring someone else with you. Try and try and get a group of two or three of you after the session and pop down and do your extras, but with someone else. I suppose it'd be like trying to practice headers on your own in football. You kind of can't unless you've got someone to kick the ball at you. Yeah. Or, or you've got one of those little like balls on a bag on a on a kind of like a <laughs> they were like I just remember getting loads of them year on year out at Christmas and you're kind of like just for little keepy uppies in the backyard and it's just yourself it's like I'm just not going to use this so that's no no <laughs> <laughs> Tony what would that look like for you guys on a on a Tuesday Thursday Sunday morning for your sessions like how how do you kind of develop the the skill-based stuff is it is it just kind of gameplay or would, would the players have those kind of habits where they're out there doing their own thing beforehand what's kind of what's the reality of, of a community club where where you've just got guys that are a variety of ages yeah um so a lot of what Carl said makes a lot of sense I think in terms of what you can do on your own a lot of the closed skills probably uh, are pretty good but you know do they do they have context to them I think that it's probably certainly in a rugby environment and probably in your judo environment as well it's it's got to have as much context as possible to what you're going to do <clears throat> excuse me so some of the things that they do they do kick a ball as every rugby player would do on a Tuesday and Thursday go out and kick a ball around to, to each other but with, with absolutely no purpose or direction to it so some of that is is uh, is is just part of what uh, you know them getting themselves ready but some of the guys will do uh, some of the hookers will do some individual throwing uh, to a net to a post which you know, could help them in terms of uh, in terms of direction, but does it help with timing? Does it help with you know the actual context of the line out? Does it help with the movement? Does it help with you know uh, uh, um, you know tracking and, and heights, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? I don't know. So it maybe it just helps them getting used to the the ball flight out of their hand. Um, one of the things we try to do at, at, in our training is is just add in some some pressure context situations. So. For example, uh, it, within the game places uh, situation, if it's uh, towards the end of the practice, we'd have a line out five meters out from the line and say to them, you have one opportunity here. Uh, whatever happens, we go in afterwards, full stop, session's over. Um, then give them the opportunity to put a little bit of pressure on what they're doing so whether it be the line out skill itself whether it be you know the whole context of the move whether their communication is on point and let them stew on it if they make a mistake then they've made it in a safe environment um, and be able to come back for next time and perhaps uh, perhaps learn from it the other thing for it, it within the same sort of uh, realm is, is is a goal kick we have um you know we've we got we've got a cracking goal kicker at our club but um you know, under under pressure, uh, the end of a, a session, we'd, we'd give them a, a, a goal kick, and and if he gets it, then they can go in. If they don't get it, then they get to do a little bit more uh, exercises, let's say. Uh, so, um, and then we might put somebody to charge him down to give some some context to what he's doing as well. So, <clears throat> I think you know, close skills. Yes, I'm not sure you can do an awful lot in terms of with with low numbers uh, or individually potentially, but you, I, I don't think it's 
I don't think it's useless time, it's not dead time, but it's, um, there's, there's definitely some context you can put to the things, to, to all of these uh, skills if, uh, if you take some time to, to, to think about them. I love that. And I think that's just, yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant number of examples of the reality of the challenges we face as coaches. And, and as you say, just trying to steer, steer some of those players towards, if you're in this kind of realm of thought, actually, how, how do you make this more, more representative, as you say? One, one last question, Cal, I'm conscious of time already. Do you think there's, and this, this works for both sides of the argument, as you said earlier, like you could spend 50% of your time doing the best possible training and you could spend 50% of your time doing something that, that's even negative or, or has no impact. Like we can't prove either. And, and I always think that's that's a real challenge. Like if if we had a you know parallel universe and I can do just just drills and, and progressions one way and I can go and do loads of games and stuff, like I'd be able to have a position where I go, yeah, this transfers. So what what is it that sells this to your mind ahead of a another way? Because actually, like again, this is where the I just think the social media argument falls down. Like yes, we've got some research that shows some stuff, but we, we don't have that. And I appreciate there's probably never going to be proof. So, but we don't have a huge amount of evidence to say really with any definitive weight, it, it's definitely one way or the other. This argument is going to keep going on. People are always going to have different schools of thought. Like what's, what's the big sell for you that makes this something that you go, I'm, this is how I operate. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so that there's, there are some papers that have done sort of compare and contrast between methodologies. Um, I think that to say there's um, that it's impossible to prove is probably, I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping not accurate anyway. Um, I think that we could, if we had enough uh, of a sample size to be able to show it fairly definitively. Uh, the big problem uh, as I, well, the, the big selling point as I see it is that the theoretical underpinning for ecological dynamics is kind of supported by a, quite a lot of robust work as well. So the way that we actually perceive stuff um, doesn't really chime with having uh, our brains doing higher order mathematics to calculate where a ball will end up at a specific moment in time as we deploy some program where we can move and intercept it at the right moment in time. The reaction time that you have to be able to intercept a ball as it's flying towards your head is quicker than your brain can work. You know, if I pitch, not if I, if a good baseball player were to pitch a ball at your head, you wouldn't have the time to be able to coordinate an action based on it. Your eyes can't see it, get to your brain, do some higher order maths, figuring out where it will be, and then coordinate an action and deploy it. Uh, there is the argument that you, um, have enough repetitions that you myelinate, you myelinate that pathway and it becomes quicker. But even then it's just, it's too, it's too fast. You can't physically do it. But what we can do is we can attune directly to it. So the information is in, in and of itself specifying. So as that ball gets closer to me, it starts getting bigger and I don't have to do maths. I just have to coordinate myself. So as it gets bigger, I'm moving to try and hit it as it gets to the big point where it needs to be. Um, I think that that's been shown to a degree that I'm confident. <laughs> I don't want to say it's been proven because there'll be somebody there that will, that will tell me off. That, I mean, I'll get into ontology and the nature of whether anything can be known. Um, 
but it, there's, enough, there's enough evidence there to have convinced me that we attune to information directly. We don't have indirect perception. We directly perceive things. Our brain isn't having to do maths and then select a motor program and deploy it, which again, I mean, it just, it moves the goalposts. You're in a position. All of these little flow charts have information comes in, we pick up on it, we do the mathsy bit, and then it just ends up with skill is done. You know, you just randomly do a move at the end of it. You're like, well, yeah, but like, how? <laughs> how do you do that? All this coordinating the degrees of freedom that we have, how we can shift all of our body mechanics into a way that we can overcome and adapt all the variability that's happening and deploy this movement pattern that we've got stored in our head. It just seems like it's, well, to me, it sounds like the same. And then magic happens. It feels a little bit like a cop-out, but yeah, I'm convinced at least. No, mate, as I say, yeah, I think you bang on and I think you just put that in a way that, as you say, is as ultimately that's all we're asking anyone to do is, I guess, look at the look at the facts and and kind of really make up their own minds. So um, yeah, we'll just we'll just wait. It always makes me think of that Simpsons, um, the one they're in the future, and they're like, well, I mean, we can do anything now. Science has created magic, and it's just this kind of like absolutely just yeah, perfect, perfect maybe uh, analogy for this. So happy days, um, mate. We'll pause that one there. But uh, it may may kind of kind of come back into its own, I think, with uh, with tone. So, tone, uh, what are you going to chat to us about? Thanks, Phil. So, uh, I'm going to just run over the uh, Magic Academy podcast from uh, Saturday, just gone. So, uh, Rusty had uh, Russell Earnshaw from, uh, from the Magic uh, Magic Academy had uh, Richie Gray uh, on the podcast. Now, Richie is um, a breakdown contact specialist guru i don't know if we're going to call him a guru but i'm going to go with guru for now um works in leon uh, in the top 14 uh, he's also with fiji uh, rugby uh, uh, in the autumn internationals coming up and as i understand has done some work in the nfl as well so uh, a, a very much a specialist in the area uh, of the breakdown and contact specifically and what was really interesting there's two parts that came out of this uh, this podcast or two two parts that sort of um, the main main learnings from it, or the main points of discussion, and that's the contact guidelines from the IRB, which I'm sure Phil you've seen and, and that's come out and, and caused a little bit of a stir. That they're guidelines at the moment, so we don't need to worry too much uh, uh, at present. And also the sort of tackle ready stuff. So the coaching resources that Richie's been a big part of uh, on the IRB website, which is going to give. We touched a little bit earlier on about community coaching under tens and under elevens and what that looks like on a Sunday morning. I think. As a coaching resource, uh, it's something that's been probably lacking for some period of time. So um, it's two really interesting parts. So for context, the, the, the coaching or the, the sorry, the, the contact guidelines that just come out. So we're probably all aware that rugby's in, in the midst of a, a class action lawsuit uh, from former professional players uh, over concussion and head injuries. So um, I think World Rugby uh, are doing as much as possible to, to kind of bring out as much as much guidance as possible. So uh, at the moment it's for the professional game. I'm sure it's gonna have ramifications in the, in the amateur setting, but it's, um, it's really interesting. So the guidelines uh, are saying that, and, and, and what's stolen the headline is this 15 minutes, and I'm sure you've, you've heard of it, but it's 15 minutes of, of contact rugby per week. Now, as with any headline, if you look at a little bit closer than the headline, you've, there's actually a lot more information to it. So the 15 minutes is, 
is what we would call in rugby circles bone on bone so full-on uh, rugby essentially so if you think about a game and, and how much ball in play time you have it's probably around 35 minutes and that's probably quite good for a for a game so 15 minutes of of, of bone on bone contact training is is you know nigh on half a game of rugby uh during the week so it's 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 a lot in in context already but but within that there's also 40 minutes of of shoulders on practice which and i'm, I'm really interested with what cal said earlier on about how much does uh, a skill have to look like the actual skill and how much can it be because shoulders on is is probably part of this discussion isn't it how how good is shoulders on to mimic a real tackle so and uh, and prepare players for for uh, you know full contact but you're allowed 40 minutes so there's 15 minutes of bone on bone 40 minutes of shoulders on and then another 30 minutes of live set piece per week as well so um in the professional setting i'm pretty sure that this will have you know big ramifications I, i'm 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 almost sure that some clubs like harlequins for example uh, are really mindful and, and, and conscious of the amount of game time that, uh, sorry, amount, the amount of contact time that they do in training. Uh, I'm aware that they use the gum shields that everyone's using with the, the uh, player load and the, the impact to, to not just record uh, in game, but actually within the whole training week. And they were able to shape training and contact time based on, um, on how much contact everyone's taking. So they were having fresh players every Saturday and, you know, I know we can't directly link that to performance, but it, they certainly had an upturn. But, uh, but um, you know, there are other clubs, uh, whether it be the community setting, whether it be the professional setting that, you know, are still doing fairly archaic, you know, really, really hard practices, uh, you know, every Tuesday, every Thursday night. And um, perhaps this guidance is, is, a, is a good way to bring people, uh, you know, into, into awareness that, that uh, uh, that that it's uh, that that there are ramifications for that level of of training. So they discussed that, and 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 I think Rusty made a good comment around uh, training at, uh, on a Thursday night at Bath was was harder than a Saturday game uh, back in the day. So um, hopefully, you know, we're moving towards uh, a more aware, a contact aware um, base. And and Richie said a really interesting kind of emotive point. I thought. Uh, that said that the players that we coach now should be able and will be able to hopefully play with their kids in 20, 30 years time really comfortably, as opposed to potentially some of the dates or some of the players from back in the day that maybe not moving around quite so well. So that was an interesting part about that. I still think there's lots to come from, from uh, world rugby on how they're going to uh, uh, implement these, uh, these guidelines into kind of more specific rules. And the second part um, was all around the tackle ready stuff. So um, I was really interested in this because uh, I'm, as you, as you said earlier on, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing a, a group of under 10s along uh, and sort of implementing their first experiences of contact. So um, Richie has been involved with, uh, as part of an IRB, I guess, panel of experts led by Joe Schmidt, looking at uh, ways to make the game a little safer um, and ways to clean up both the breakdown and the, and the contact area. And there's, um, if you go on, I'm sure it's going to be linked into your uh, into the blurb in this uh, podcast. But the 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 World Rugby Tackle Ready uh, resources for coaches is is really quite good. I think we've come out of COVID, 
and some people have, have come out of it well conditioned. Some people have been doing uh, a lot of work, whether it be individually or with their clubs. Um, and some people have come out particularly deconditioned. We've seen this as a, <laughs> come on, Phil, when have you, you're, you're always conditioned, come on. Um, so I, we've, I've seen this as a community coach. It's really interesting. We, we've played a, a couple of games and some of the sides look particularly poorly conditioned and, and are really suffering from this 18 months. And other sides who've continued to work um, throughout the process is, are, are coming out well. So um, I think, this tackle ready stuff is probably more for the youngsters. It's probably targeted more at the youngsters. Um, try and get their, their technique right, trying to make tackling as safe as possible uh, and trying to get, uh, uh, I guess, less injuries and potentially less injuries. And it's just sort of looked at five areas and, and Richie Gray uh, was the one that's kind of implemented this. He said uh, he's looking at the tracking, the preparation, the connection, the acceleration and the finish as areas of, uh, or the breakdown of five areas of, of the tackle. And within those areas, there's certain KPIs. So tracking, for example, you know, uh, we might be looking at, uh, you know, your, your, your vision and how you're looking and how you're positioning yourself and how you're making your decision. The preparation, for example, is about uh, your, your dip and how high you are and how close you are to that player and, and it goes on and on and on but essentially there's a series of key performance indicators within those five uh, areas of the tackle um, and the resources I think were helpful I, you know I, 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 uh, I took a, a one from each and I've started implementing it with this with some of the youngsters that I coach and because it kind of it uh, and this this again comes back to Cal's talk uh, uh, earlier on um, some of them do have, you know, bags in them that may not be uh, great crossover, but may well be able to put part of the skill together and part of their learning process. But some of them are, uh, some of the drills or some of the practices include uh, almost starting as a tackle and then just finishing it, if you like. So having the ring of steel, having your uh, head close, or Richie calls it the arrow head. So nice and close, nice and tight and then finishing from there. So getting used to kind of falling and getting used to um, what a tackle should feel like when it's successful. So um, yeah, it's a really interesting podcast. I think there's uh, a lot of things that got me thinking about my coaching, my practice, and a lot of things that got me thinking about the tackle area in general, to be honest. So gone on a bit there, but that's, uh, that's, the, that's, uh, uh, that's they're my thoughts. Mate, love it. Thank you very much. I, I was well. There's two things. Number one, I'm conditioned for something. I just haven't found what I'm conditioned for yet. So uh, that that was a laugh in the middle of that. And also, 35 minutes ball in play. You definitely were not at the bath game on Saturday because if it was three and a half minutes of ball in play, I would have. Yeah, genuinely, it was it was just shocking. So that's that's my soapbox. That's my rant. We'll 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 get back to your points, which are far more important. So, um, how how much do you think it will impact the community game? Do you think this is something that uh, coaches are concerned about? Is that something you you talk to mums and dads about on a on a Sunday morning? Uh, you know, are kids dropping out because of the 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 I guess deemed dangers of rugby and concussion? Is is this like a real problem all the way down, or do you think it's kind of just maybe focusing on the on the pro game at the moment? That's an interesting question. I think um, 
I think absolutely parents are, are looking at rugby that's been fairly high profile in the news. Uh, as I said earlier on, there's, a, there's a, a class action lawsuit going on. There's some profile to rugby in terms of its, its dangers. We know it's a, it's a collision sport. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a very, very uh, demanding, physically demanding sport. And I think parents are probably a little bit more aware than they were. So um, I think if there's a responsibility amongst the community coaches and, and the community game to make sure the amount of kids we're coaching now, just locally where, where, where I am in Bristol, that you know, south of Bristol, there's so many clubs, so many kids on a Sunday morning. I think it's, it, it behooves us as a, as a group to upskill ourselves as much as possible in this area that you know, may well produce the next, um, you know, the, the next uh, yes, the next amateur uh, uh, players, but also some of the academy players, some of the professional players. And you know, we still see at the professional level people, people putting their head the wrong side in a tackle, don't we? So there, there's, um, there's, 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 a, there's a big job to do. One of the things that Richie said in the, in the, uh, in the podcast is, you know, we have, a, we have a, a collision sport, but we don't have a, a tackle culture uh, within, within rugby. And I, what he means by that, I think, is that we've got a gym culture, haven't we? You know, where, where people spend an awful lot of time getting themselves physically, you know, ready, but how technically ready, uh, you know, do we spend our time, as much time as we do bench pressing and squatting as we do on tackle technique? I don't know whether we do, and, and that was one of the comments that he made, I thought was really interesting. But um, I th certainly think from my perspective, I'm trying to spread the awareness of these resources to the, my network and to the people around me. And I think hopefully uh, from this discussion today that some uh, community level coaches will be uh, looking to try and upskill themselves in this area and really give their kids the best opportunity to, to learn these techniques as safely and as effectively as possible. I think that's a great point. And I, I, yeah, I haven't listened to the, to the Magic Academy pod yet. It's, it's on my list, but I, I love that. And I, it kind of tees up my next question that around how, how do you think we overcome the challenge? Because in my head, I can already hear coaches saying, oh, if, you know, if, the, if an academy or a DPP or part of the pathway or anything gets restricted around the amount of contact we can do, the players won't be ready enough for pro rugby or senior rugby. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I can think lots of people will try and pull up the fact that you need to do hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of contact related training. And I just wonder what what maybe like if in your head what's the answer to that and, and i'm putting a load of stuff i'm not saying it, it's the answer but if if you you know in the pathway do you think this is about using that time more wisely with the players you have to create better technique and that will then stay with them and transfer up is this about do you need more time at certain levels of the game like just where where would you sit and kind of that that debate well Firstly, if I have got the answer, Phil, then I want to be invited to the next Joe Schmidt-led conference of a uh, panel of experts, to be honest, because, you know, little old, um, you know, community coach from the Southwest here. I, uh, I think, look, I, I think it's got to be education. It's got to be getting as much message out as possible. I think, you know, we do have the opportunity here, you know, if World Rugby are taking this as seriously as, uh, you know, to produce this content, then it behooves us all to kind of spread this message out as much as possible and be fairly relentless with uh, each individual our clubs our co our, our uh, um, you know our, our colleagues etc to make sure that they are upskilling themselves and educating themselves in this area because you it's it's still plenty of time <laughs> so if these guidelines come in 
there is still plenty of time to be able to uh, bring players uh, uh, up the, uh, I guess, along the journey of, of learning how to tackle safely and effective, effectively. Um, so I think it's I think it's probably an easy excuse to say um, to say no we can't do it and, and no if you know if, if, we, if professional clubs don't have this time what are we going you know it's it's probably easy to do this but in reality how much do we do at the moment you know I think even a little bit more than we do at the moment is going to have a massive effect so I think um, you know the first stage right now is to is to for me to educate as many people as possible and create some awareness on these two areas. And, and ensure that the time you do spend on contact is effective because there is plenty of time. I'm, I'm pretty sure in the, you know, in the, in the hour, hour and a half you have on a Sunday morning <clears throat> that, that you'll be able to do you know, a good 10 to 15, 20 minutes of, 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 of good progressive uh, tackling uh, skills um, that, that would be able to support their learning. Oh, how much do you think rugby can learn from other sports? Obviously, judo is is the big one, and there's often you know we hear stories at, at all levels, I guess, of, of guys kind of getting judo coaches in or going to to judo clubs and that type of stuff. Like how, yeah, how much do you think that could help with this type of thing? It's an interesting one, isn't it? I, I certainly know that um, NFL have, have looked at rugby uh, the other way around. Uh, I know that uh, Pete Carroll at the Seahawks, the Seattle Seahawks, you know, many years ago, when when the NFL were going through similar to what rugby is going through now in terms of the concussion and the uh, the whole uh, head injury part of things, the where he retrained and brought in some rugby uh, uh, people to, to to teach people how to tackle. Uh, properly and low because obviously they were just smashing each other in the head as hard as they could so um, that was always going to be a short term short term uh, <laughs> uh, at best so um, certainly that way around but I've, I've I've noticed people who do a a crossover of of sports and this is like purely anecdotal from my perspective and, and Cal will know much more about this certainly from a judo perspective but um, you know my son does a, a number of sports uh, we've been in judo with rugby football uh, he's done tennis, he's done uh, all sorts of other bits and pieces, but certainly the the judo side of things and the <clears throat> the getting used to contact and being able to be around close contact maneuver uh, of other people's bodies and understanding mechanics in that way, there's huge crossover to rugby. I've noticed the kids that do other sports, certainly combat sports, whether it be jiu-jitsu, martial arts, mixed martial arts or judo or um, are able to manage that area a lot better just because of their understanding of, of movement and close contact work. So I'll probably tag Cal in here for, for, the, uh, for, the, for the judo discussion, perhaps we cross over with rugby. Yeah, yeah. so I, I did rugby sort of for maybe three seasons, like for seconds and first for my local team, and consistently found that the ball got in the way of the game. Like, it's great when they've got the ball, when they run at you and you can just tackle them. That, that's kind of my wheelhouse. I'm fine with that. And then they throw you the egg and you've got to throw it or run with it or whatever. Well, that's where I struggled. Uh, yeah, so I think after, what, 28 years of judo, I've become really accustomed to contact in those spaces. Uh, and I can fall safely. You know, if I'm running along and I end up being chopped down, I can protect my head. I can land in what we call breakfall, an ukemi in the Japanese. Uh, and avoid taking damage in the hit in the floor phase. Uh, I imagine though that, and again, I might might be speaking from ignorance with my my three 
three seasons of playing. But I imagine that the majority of the damage that's caused, the majority of concussions, come from the chaos of playing rugby, making a, let's say you're drifting over, trying to, you're anticipating a pass from a player. They don't release it. You've stepped too far. So you have to turn back in towards yourself and you have to bring that man down. You know, you, you have to make that tackle. He's your man now. And now you're on the wrong side of him. You put your head in and you're on the wrong side and he just knees you in the face. I'd imagine that that's probably the majority of the the big hits. It's the defender has misread or they've not attuned to the specifying information efficiently, if you'll forgive me. <laughs> uh, and they've just taken a, a clout because of it. So, well, there was a lot of, I really, I really enjoyed the uh, Magic Academy podcast. I thought that uh, Richie put some really, really important points across. Uh, welfare being the priority, all on board with that. And you can see that there's the potential for too much head contact that, well, we have the class action, class action lawsuit. There's obviously something going wrong where people are taking too many repetitive blows to the head and we want to minimise that. And the only issue as I saw it was that some of the stuff on the rugby ready passport thing um, ended up having no... Uh, there was no specified information, really. A lot of it is, is dropping a shield and you had to time a tackle based on that. Uh, there was they're running at a cone and you have to tackle it. So you've you know ahead of time it's like a prescribed thing. They're not trying to step you, you're not having to learn how to read how somebody's hips look when they're making a bit of footwork pattern. So all the information that you would actually learn how to coordinate your tackle safely isn't there and I thought that that was that was um that was strange that's something that I thought might be missing obviously I'm I'm a judo coach in North Wales I'm not part of the expert committee that have have obviously done robust research in the area um but yeah I think that probably the majority of the collisions the things that rattle your brain will be a misread and you'll have been beaten by some footwork and putting your head in where it doesn't belong because you feel responsible and you don't want your team to lose and you make a tackle or try and make a tackle and you're not prepared for it and you end up getting clattered. I wouldn't imagine that there's any professional players that don't know foot and shoulder on the same side, head on the right side in the tackle zone. I imagine that that's just known. It's, so I, I, I don't want to get too literature and, and boring for you all but uh, Gibson an ecological psychologist has a thing that he calls knowledge about and knowledge of um, and I think what this does is it builds knowledge about it tells you what you do in these situations but it's just it's a completely different thing knowing it in some abstract thing in your head and actually being able to do it when somebody runs at me and they make a really quick footwork pattern and I've mistimed my approach I have to then adjust and make a tackle if I've not developed that skill in how to attune to that information and coordinate my action I can't just deploy well I need my head on this side and my foot and my shoulder have to go at the right time they have to be on the same side it's just it seems as though that's an impossibility I imagine that practicing technique in isolation outside of the context of the uh, the environment that it's performed in might not actually have that much of a um, might not have that much benefit 
long term. I'd imagine there might be some form of practice where instead of having more than 50 minute bone on bone, you could still do shoulders in, but you're learning how to read. <laughs> you know, you're playing touch, but with shoulders in essentially. So instead of this ridiculous, you, you touch them and they let go of the ball. Where's the fun in that? They still have to actually get their shoulder in. They have to be able to read what's happening. They have to pick up on that specified information and coordinate a tackle in the appropriate way. If in that game, you've made a little sidestep, they've drifted and they come back in and tackle on the wrong shoulder. At that point, that's a coachable moment. You can repeat it and they can learn how to attune to that information. If they do get beaten on the inside, they can learn how they can adjust their body and coordinate an action in context. I'm not sure how much it, much uh, some of the practice tests, you know, running, carrying a tackle bag, I'm not sure how much that will help people learn how to coordinate in a game. You know, it seems as though it's practicing a technique, not practicing a skill. And you can't just take a technique and plug it in and suddenly it's a skill. Uh, but as I say, I'm a judo coach in North Wales, not one of the experts on the panel. So I might just be talking nonsense. I think you raised some really good points and I, I was just mulling over in my head, like, is, is that maybe one of the challenges as coaches see it with, um, I guess, repetition? Because you kind of, I think everyone would probably be of the belief that you, you, you get better by doing or seeing or having the, the opportunity to repeat things multiple times. But actually, what what if the game you are playing, like is that just a poor game? If that doesn't give you multiple opportunities to see similar actions, because I'm thinking again, if like your example, if I'm if I'm tracking across and I've overchased, like how many times can I guarantee that happens in the game? Whereas actually, if I'm just playing, if I create a channel where it's a one v one and it's a wide channel, the chances are that happens more often. Then it's a case of what's the mechanism of getting all the players to have a go in that channel. So do you know what I mean? It's kind of just thinking about, I think, and maybe this is going back to Tony's point earlier, like the evolution of the, the, the pedagogy and the actual knowledge of the process to enable this to happen. Is this, I, I just think this is maybe the bits that's missing for a lot of people of how do I make that, repetition and the, the you know the, the catchy phrase is repetition without repetition isn't it which genuinely I've seen people sit there and go what like <laughs> how, how how do we get that because that's that's just counterintuitive so yeah like what are your both your thoughts around that how, how do we construct stuff without just taking it out and, and drilling it how do we create an environment where we are getting lots of repetition lots of opportunities to attune to the information but maybe we're not it's more engaging for one, but maybe we're not actually then necessarily kind of drilling in isolation. Yeah. Uh, so again, judo coach, not, not rugby, uh, but I'd imagine you, so thinking you design a practice task where you can try and overload that situation. So what I think I'd look to do is I'd play with a quite a wide pitch and constrain the defense so that they can't set up outside of half of the pitch. So the attackers can pass the ball wide really, really quickly, but the defence start insanely narrow. So for them to defend, they have to be drifting. They are naturally forced through the way that the game is constructed to run that direction. The players in attack are passing, and there's an obvious overload on the outside. So 
So they're trying to force the ball out wide. As the defence drifts, there's going to be ridiculous numbers of opportunities. As they're drifting over like wild men, I mean, even I could probably get a step on in that game. And I'm a lumbering, bumbling idiot. So someone that can actually play the game would probably have a multitude of opportunities. They'd be able to get that repetition without repetition. They'd be doing the skill a bunch of different times, but not rehearsing it where it's a predetermined skill that they're going to be doing over and over and over. If we play a game where I'm running towards a yellow cone, but when the coach claps, oh, that's going to come up on the microphone. Sorry about that. When the coach claps, I have to sidestep and go towards the red cone. And the defender, when he hears the clap, will track me and go inside. Well, that's prescribed. That's a rehearsal. I know as soon as that clap happens, he's going that direction. And all I do is make sure I get my head and shoulder on the right side and I do the little te- the little technique that I've practiced. That's, that's not what happens in reality. In reality, I'm going, oh my God, he's going over that way. I've got to stop him. And then he does a little bit of footwork and I'm going, oh, I've got to go that way now. And I have to adjust in the moment. So it's not repetition, just rehearsal. It's not, I'm doing this little prescribed preset thing 10 times and then in a game, it'll be fine. When it happens, I'll spot it. I'll know how to do it because I've practiced it 10 times. You're actually putting yourself in a situation where that occurs a multitude of times. You're getting that repetition, but without rehearsal. I say repetition without rehearsal. Maybe that's uh, a bit easier for me to understand. Coin, coin a new phrase, mate. Copyright. Trademark, yeah. yeah trademark <laughs> it. Bang. That's, that's yours now. <laughs> Tony, how about you? What, what, is, what does that look like within your sessions when, again, like with kids or adults? Because I, I do think there's, you know, you're almost trying to, certainly with adults, I find you, you're trying to get them to, not that you can, but you want them to almost unlearn some stuff. Do you know what I mean? There's so many bad habits. And how, how do you go about approaching those challenges? Yeah, absolutely. It's difficult, isn't it? I think understanding where where people are in terms of their, you know, in terms of their technique and, and understanding where they are in, in, in their uh, in their journey is, a, is, is part of it. But I guess we do a lot of skill zones, so a lot of small sided kind of games to, 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 to kind of create the problem. It's, it's the age old thing we come back to from the beginning. It's, it's we can it's drills versus, I guess, small sided games and larger sided games and see how much we can get in terms of, uh, of, of getting the problem uh, within the game a number, a number of times or repetition without rehearsal, as you say. So I think from my perspective, I try to do as many skill zones as possible, small-sided games, try and create a problem where the players are seeing a number of opportunities to solve it, not just in, in one or two um, cases in a larger game. Um, yeah, and I guess, and just try and exaggerate the problem, put some conditions in, put some scenarios in, put some particular situations that may or may not happen. Um, and, but, it, but it will vary from, from, like I said, from an under nines or under tens in their first bit of contact to, to a senior level five uh, community player, depending on what that looks like. So you'll have to vary it depending on, um, you know, exactly what you're trying to get out of it. So. Yeah, I think from my perspective, smaller sided to get as many looks as possible within context is 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 something that I do a fair amount of, um, uh, to be honest. And that's that's something that I think has some carry over into into the larger game. Then, do you, do you find any of the players are concerned with where the game's at in terms of the kind of the contact and the the risk that goes with that, or is it is it not something that in your experience they're too 
they're too worried about or they're they're particularly conscious of like I'm just trying to, you know, as has a player come up and gone, I think I've got really poor technique. Can can you give me some work ons? Or is it they're just if they get better at it as part as part of the season and, and kind of part of their development, great, but they're not they're not necessarily focusing on it. So just technique in isolation, or do you mean in terms of worried about the game in terms of post-COVID and their break from contact or or yeah, yeah, you... I guess, yeah, a, a little bit, you know, they haven't done contact in quite a long time. Yeah. It's suddenly a really big thing in the game. Loads of people talk about it. It's in the press. Like, are, yeah, are players maybe more concerned or is is that driving them to want to have better technique? Do you get any of them kind of saying, we need to do some more tackle work or some more contact work because we've got to be better at this or I've got to be better at this, either post-COVID or just moving forward because I want to be safer? Um, I think, I guess my sample is quite small, so I, I wouldn't be speaking for anyone other than the group that I'm involved with. But I think if we'd have done less uh, work in the co- in, in, during COVID, then potentially yes. And if the players had taken a, a longer time out of the game. But, you know, we were one of the clubs um, within, within, you know, our environment that said that we need to carry on doing something because at some point this is going to be over and we're going to get back to doing things. So... The whole the whole process for us was about understanding what we could do and not using it as an excuse to not do anything. So we, we carried on doing whether it be, you know, one on one um, stuff, whether it be in our sixes, whether it be, you know, the various different things we were allowed to do and the degrees of touch games along the way just to keep things going. So I don't know whether the players had the time to think about necessarily uh technique wise and what they were lacking in terms of the contact side of things as much as they had time to think about how much they missed the game (laughs) and how much they missed the camaraderie and the friendships and the 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 belonging that they have within their their environment excuse me so I think if anything it was probably uh, that more than than the other side but the I do have players that are constantly looking to improve and I think you know, in, in any community club, you'll have the ones who will come to you and say, you know, what about this? What about this area? Tell me, you know, have you looked at the video this week? What, what am I doing well? What am I, what are my work ons? Where can I improve? Um, and then you'll have the, you know, the player that that is just happy to be there and <laughs> and happy to, to carry on as is. And, that, and that's fine as well. And, and, you know, my job is to just keep them motivated and keep them engaged and, you know, drop bits where I where I think is appropriate. So I don't know whether I've answered your question as, 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 as well as I could have, but from my experience, um, there's a bit of a mixed bag out there. I think other clubs may, and other uh, rugby environments may experience something slightly different. I can imagine a player who's been away from the game for two years, you know, of any particular age, maybe 30, maybe married kids, et cetera, et cetera, big mortgage, coming back to play again and going, ooh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm thinking twice. Whereas, you know, people that haven't really been away and have stuck with it and continued on, on, on their engagement have probably gone, okay, and worked on, on, on their conditioning, have come back fighting fit, ready and, and, and ready to get stuck in. So, um, yeah, bit of a mixed bag one. Oh, mate, I think you answered that perfectly. I, it's just interesting. I, I've definitely had a lot more conversations I can think of within the last 
18 months, I would guess, just, just on that. I think it's just something the players seem to be more conscious of and actually they want, maybe they're not they're not really chasing me to, to say, you know, how do I get better at this? But it's that kind of, uh, hmm, yeah, no, I'm, I'm just, it's just that constant thought of, I don't, I, I want to avoid getting concussed. And, and I wondered the, what, I think it's great that it's, they're recognising it, but it's also that, if it's if it's in the forefront of your mind, does it almost make it more likely? Do you know what I mean? Are like, are you like second guessing yourself? If you go into a game going, oh, I'm really worried about getting injured, or I've got a wedding on Saturday, I can't get injured. Like that, in my experience, sods law is the typical time that 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 would happen. So yeah, no, just just interesting to to see kind of your experience and and where you think people are at with that type of stuff. But just on that, I think you know. Rugby is a is a is a tough game, and and you know I don't know how long the amateur game, you know, will continue. At, certainly on the lower levels, and what I think we may end up with a game probably professional and semi professional going forward in in many years to come. But um, I just think that if you have that mindset, it's 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 not you shouldn't be playing, and and you have you you should you should take the time to think about what it is that's driving those thoughts and 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 feelings, and then be able to resolve them because. You, you're absolutely right with any you know uh collision combat sport situation your 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 mindset has to be an understanding of it is you know it's not the safest sport in the world it's a it's a dangerous collision sport so you need to be well prepared well conditioned and you know your technique and, and skill level needs to be appropriate for it so if you're prepared to do all those things and you can go into it with confidence then I think you you know you'd be absolutely fine. But but if you're starting those things to creep in, you probably want to address those before you go and play again. I think. Cal, what's what's your thoughts on that from a, a, a you know a contact sport, a, a fighting environment? Like how how much is of that is an issue with people that you're coaching, the kids or adults, or is it just something people accept the risks and as you say, you just work hard to make sure they're as good as they can be? Yeah, I suppose in. Kind of raises a, an interesting philosophical point that's probably well beyond the purview of the time we've got remaining. But we're in rough sports, we're in full contact sports, we're aware of the dangers, we're adults. I think that rugby itself has a duty of care to try and minimize the risk to people. But at a certain point, grown ups, adults have the right to choose whether they want to take part in the game. So, I mean, boxing is. A terrifying sport. I would not want to do boxing. I did MMA for a very brief amount of time with a, a local club. Didn't have any fights or anything, but I did some sort of training. And uh, I remember sparring there. And I came from a judo background, so I could throw people on the floor and submit them. I was pretty good at that. But they were allowed to punch me in the face. So, like, if I won, I'd take them to the floor. I'd armbar them. But I'd have been punched in the head like 10 times. And I'd have like my face would be out here. I'd be hobbling along and, oh, good fight, thank you. And they just get thrown and go, they tap. They have no marks. They're in no pain at all. And I thought, yeah, I, I'm going to stick with the throwing them on the floor bit, not the getting repeatedly punched in the head bit. But there are adults of sound mind who make the decision that they're more than happy to run the risk of having repeated concussive blows to the head for their sport. Whether world boxing itself has a responsibility or duty of care to minimise that if they legislate how much full contact sparring you should be able to do, I think it's the same as rugby. Um, so 
from my my side of things in judo there's next to no concern for concussion uh people 99 well 99.9 times out of 100 will have tucked their chin in they land and break fall their head's nowhere near the floor um it's usually freak accidents where there'll be some concussions they do occur uh but you know a, a community club it's it's extremely rare i have a friend that plays rugby that has had like seven concussions and he just plays at a local club you know he's not he's not playing professionally um and you think he still plays he he's aware of the risk he uh yeah he's decided that he's he doesn't want any more concussions if he gets any more he says he's packing it in but he won't you know it's a it's a sport people love they're aware of the risks rugby i think is doing the right thing especially with a with a class action lawsuit coming against them they probably have to be seen to be doing something at the very least um but at a certain point there's you know if if adults are allowed to make the choice to smoke they should be allowed to make the choice to play a sport that might have some risks yeah that's me on my soapbox now <laughs> no i think you make a good point i think sound mind is probably debatable knowing some of the people that we we all probably do as to yeah how how actually justifiable that is but um no guys this this is i'm conscious of your time that it's 10 to 10 in the evening but um this is this has been a really really fascinating discussion i think just around some uh yeah some topics that are very pertinent and and kind of always um knocking around within coaching and within the game and with everything else so uh i thoroughly enjoyed this um i am going to put you on the spot i didn't prep you for this but if you do have any recommendations uh in terms of content if you want to throw something out there by all means you know book other podcasts anything else that you might be reading or engaging with at the moment then then now is the time to do that if uh no drama if not i've just thrown you under the bus so um by by all means jump in uh, yeah, talent equation is always good. Um, and UK coaching are putting out a lot of really good content now. They've got a, a members area that uh, is a paid subscription. I think it's, I can't remember how much it is. It's I, not I, a lot. Yeah, it's, it's not, yeah, it's for what you get, it's an absolute. Yeah, part. yeah, yeah. And they've got some really, really good content. Um, it's well worth, well worth them. And especially if you, if you coach like as a full time thing or you're passionate about it, the, um, the information you get for the price you pay is is well worth it. Yeah, that'd be that'd be my two. Fantastic, top man. Tony, what are you saying? I'm sure it's probably been covered here, but uh, Owen Eastwood's book on uh, belonging is uh, what I'm reading at the moment. I'm fascinated by uh, team culture. I'm fascinated by understanding it uh, a little bit better uh, and and implementing it in, in even just local community clubs. I think uh, you know, it, uh, I think can have massive effects, like we saw with Quinns last year. A top recommendation guys thank you very much as i say really appreciate your time uh i've i've really enjoyed this and, and i just think yeah a difficult challenging subjects that that we've hopefully put in a way that that is actually practical and people can can walk away with some kind of as we said at the beginning maybe some like on the grass examples rather than some of this stuff being being a slightly abstract debate so um definitely a good one thank you very much uh i will round up the roundup uh to all those listening we hope you enjoyed the episode thanks again to the guys for coming on and contributing to a great discussion links to all the content we talked about are available in the blurb on rugby coach weekly as always i'd like to thank you for listening wish you all the best and go well 